Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. That was an incredible show we just did with Ron Bauer. Talked about so many cool things. This guy's an entrepreneur, went from tech to investing in the venture level to wildcatting in Canada, took his company public on the uh, – merging with an, a company out of Africa. I mean, this $3 billion market cap, total craziness with this. And then we'll go all the way. We start talking about what he looks for in investments. I mean, amazing conversation about the metaverse. I never even thought I would even be talking about that. But so many cool things. Great entrepreneur has done so many cool things in the world. Stay tuned. Enjoy the show. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Rashazi. And boy, do we have a special guest. My man, Ron Bowers in the house. What's up, Ron? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm so pumped to have you here. So for listeners who are new to the show, the, the greatness machine, we're about two things. We're about people who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And my friend Ron here is now the shorter passion or greatness. Uh, so I was introduced to Ron actually through a former guest, Travis Chappelle. Um, and, he, and he's like, look, man, you got to have this guy on the show. He's got a great story to tell. And, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. A lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show, and I love really amazing entrepreneurial stories. And Ron really ha- has done some super impressive things in the world of business. So super excited to chop it up with you, talk about the things that you did, what you learned from those experiences, as well as, you know, you have a pretty extensive background in the world of venture, just to talk about what you're seeing right now, because we're seeing a lot of economic disruption from a climate perspective. And and, and I know that that's a, a strength of yours. So um, Ron, if you don't mind, can I go, give your, I'm going to give the listeners your formal bio, and then we can jump into uh, really your origin story and, and what, what's gotten you to where you're at. Does that work for you? Yeah, that's perfect. Awesome, man. So um, Ron Bauer is the founder of Theseus Capital, and it's a, it's a venture, ca- venture fund, uh, venture firm, excuse me, uh, and venture capitalist. He's focused on fintech, SaaS, gaming, VR, metaverse, uh, web 3.0. Uh, as well as gaming. Uh, he's also the co-founder of Turkana Energy, which merged and became a $3 billion market cap company on the TSX and NASDAQ. 
Uh, he considers his greatest personal quality is his ability to adapt himself to the changing economic climates and diversifying sectors. So I'm, I'm love, love that that's one of your strengths. Cause I think that the world we live in today is in heavy need of people capable of doing that. So, um, man, super pumped to have you here. Welcome, Ron. Thank you. So what I'd love if you don't mind is, you know, the greatness machine was really born out of, of, uh, an event that I did in San Francisco called TEDx Golden Gate Park. And it was really exploring people that had lived their passions to to do really hard things. And, you know, you've done some really cool things in your life, but do you mind kind of taking us back, giving us your origin story, just so we can get some context around what's gotten you to where you're at? Sure. You know, I've always been interested in the stock market, capital market. So in high school, you know, I'm 16 years old, second last year of high school. And my economics class, our teacher recommended that some of the students enter into a stock market competition. It was a stock market competition put on by TD Bank and the Globe and Mail. And it was a national contest in Canada. I entered it. They gave us a $50,000 fictitious account to trade. And, you know, the first week or two, I started, you know, stock picking and I was reading financial magazines and newsletters and trying to pick stocks. And, you know, I thought I was doing a great job. I went up like... 20, 30% thinking, you know, this is a winner. And every they would publish the results in the paper. And, you know, I'm at like 60, 70,000 thinking, what a great job I've done. And I see people at like 400,000, 300,000. Wow. Like, how do these people get to it? And then I realized very quickly that, you know, you had a short window of 16 weeks. People were choosing options. They were writing options, buying options. They were trading futures. They were trading commodities. And so I started educating myself on the intricacies of the markets and of, you know, if I like a stock, I could buy options on it or I could I could buy futures. And and I just became so ingrained in the market in reading and educating myself and learning. And so from a young age, from the age of 16, when my friends were reading, you know, Sports Illustrated and Playboy, I was reading, you know, Northern Miner in the Financial Post and started trading the markets. And that was my sort of, you know, uh, aha moment in life. And I always knew I wanted to get in the markets. And then, you know, I studied business and economics and one thing led to another. I started out in, you know, the asset management business. And then very quickly in my 20s, you know, I met a bunch of uh, venture capitalists and I started working with uh, a group of venture capitalists that were, you know, early stage VCs. They would fund companies, really early stage ventures and growth companies in tech. And, you know, I started down that path. I was 25, 26 when I started in that path. And, you know, a few years of working for other people and learning the ins and outs of the business, I went out on my own. And, you know, for the past 20 years, I've been doing my own deals. You know, I started in the tech space. My first company that I did solo with with partners on, on, on my own as an independent venture capitalist, not working for another group, was a tech company. Helped take it public, you know, did really well with the company. And then the tech market crashed. And, you know, all of a sudden I was in this situation, Darius, where, you know, I, I just had a big win, made a lot of money. I had all these tools and, you know, ways of, of operating in the markets and, and, and learning how to scale a business and raise capital and grow it. But, you know, the, the area that I thought I would be focused on for the next 20, 30 years was just dead. You know, you couldn't raise any money. And lo and behold, you know, I was in Canada at the time. I was introduced to an oil and gas opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, you know, I was presented with this amazing oil and gas opportunity. And, you know, the real difference between oil and gas and tech is, you know, on the tech side, I was trying to sell people an idea of a potential future value. And 
you know, there were so many variables against you and so many things like people needed to love the product you had or the software. And then there's so many roadblocks along the way. Whereas, you know, I figured out really quickly, you know, on the oil and gas space and mining space, you have a piece of property, a piece of dirt, a piece of ground. It's a hard asset in the ground. You hire an engineering company to evaluate it for you. Sometimes it you know, turns out that the project you put your, you know, you, you thought was a great project is a lemon and you don't pursue it. But sometimes you land on, you know, a hidden gem and a great project and you have these independent people verifying it. So all of a sudden the light bulb went on in my head. I said, here's an opportunity to, you know, amplify the resource space. And, and for seven, eight years, you know, my partners and I, we, we did dozens of oil and gas and mining companies. That was our, our core area of focus. And then, you know, that space fell apart and, and we found our way, you know, into biotech, medtech, fintech. So I'm almost like a, a financial chameleon. You know, I was able to adapt myself to changing market conditions. Everything I do is exactly the same. So, you know, to answer your question, what I do has not changed in 25 years. I do the exact same thing. The sectors have changed. So whether it is tech to start, then oil and gas and mining, then gaming, then fintech, then medtech, then biotech, now edtech, and now metaverse and VR, I've been doing the exact same thing. I'm looking for a great story. I'm looking for disruptors. I'm looking for passionate, charismatic people with fantastic ideas that want to do good and change the world. You know, I'm helping these people structure and put their deal together. I'm helping them raise money. I'm helping them find investment bankers or underwriters. We're just, we're helping them make the decision on, you know, which exchange is the right one for them, whether it's in Canada or the UK or the US. And then we're helping, you know, hold their hand along the whole journey, dealing with, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you know, dealing with lawyers, auditors, accountants, underwriters, transfer agents. You know, it's a it's a scary and, and complicated process for founders and entrepreneurs that don't have experience. And so, you know, we're almost like, an incubator and an accelerator and a minority partner all in one. If, if Interesting. So, so yeah, I want to, I want to, uh, I appreciate the, 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 that was a really concise way of boiling down a couple decades. Um, <laughs> um, but it uh, sounds number one, kudos to you on the success. I think what you just, you made something that's super hard, sounds super easy. Um, and for, for listeners that don't know what I mean by that, what I mean by that is to be able to move, from sector to sector, you know, and without necessarily having domain expertise is, I think, difficult. So it just kind of proves that that you have an ability that your system works considering the success you've had. So I do want to take a step back, though. You know, the, the, there was a tech meltdown and you pivoted into oil and gas, which is an old world business, more or less, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my wife's family comes from the oil and gas business. They did really well. This was 130 years ago though. And back then this was like the, the this is in Texas. This is the, they, they were the tech boom of the, you know, 19 of 1900, right. Or the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, obviously it's a resource that the world depends on. And, and I know that I had a lot of friends up in, I believe it was, is it Calgary area? Is, is that where they had all, all the oil and gas boom uh, in yeah. like the early 2000s? So I remember I had a friend, uh, I, I was in this program at MIT called Birthing of Giants. And there's a bunch of entrepreneurs from Canada there. And this is in 07, 08. Yeah. And they're bragging to me about how, uh, you know, first of all, it was the first time I think the loonie was on in parity with the US dollar like yeah. ever, 
right? Number one. Number two, um, they were talking about how, I mean, a lot of them were in that area and they were saying, you got to pay, you know, McDonald's workers 20 bucks an hour to come here because there's so much money flowing. The oil sands probably. They're probably talking about oil sands, Fort McMurray. That was yes. the hot line. Yes, the oil sands. That was this 2007, is- 8. Right, right, right. It was more expensive to buy um, a mobile home in Fort McMurray and hire people were getting paid 150, 200 grand a year, you know, to work as, you know, what you call rough hands, you know, people working on rigs it was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember, I remember that specifically. And, and, and uh, the reason I remember is I was a subprime mortgage lender there. So I was in the, like the pits of hell dealing with my business and these guys were all pumped up, but I was like, man, that's, that's super interesting. So, so, when you pivoted in that business, were you doing like wildcatting? Uh, you said mining. Like, what, what was the business like that you guys we had? Wildcatting, yeah, definitely. We what we would do is we were looking for strategic opportunities. We were proximity players, so our whole pitch was: if Anadarko or Devon or Exxon or Chevron are in this specific area and they have a million acres there, we don't need to have a million acres. We could have a hundred thousand acres next door to them. You know. Oil doesn't sit. How do they know the oil sits only in their block? Oil is like a pool. If it moves into our block because it's not in their block, you know, the 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 actual structure that it may not just be the structure in their in their concession. It could be in ours. So we we pivoted ourselves as proximity players. We would go to proven regions and proven areas that were hot and popular. You know, we'd go to like Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Alaska. We'd go everywhere. We went everywhere in the U.S. where there were were, were great opportunities. And we didn't have to have a million acres. We weren't trying to build a $20 billion company. We were happy to build a $100, $200 million company and start small and work from there. So we were going and acquiring, outbidding major companies or buying from landman projects. And then we were going out and headhunting and recruiting strong management teams. We would go and, you know, find people that worked for, you know, mid-tier independents or larger, you know, large oil and gas players. And we would bring on, you know, a guy that might have been a VP at Anadarko or at Exxon, let him come on as our CEO, you know, a guy who's been 20 years at a major, he's never going to be the CEO. So, you know, we'll give him a, you know, a chance to build his own independent company and and partner with him. So we had a real good skill set of identifying great strategic properties and great strategic management. And then it got to the point where we had, you know, great success in the U.S. and Canada projects became too expensive for us because people knew what our, you know, we had this, you know, modus operandi, we had this roadmap or formula for building a company. And people said, Hey, you're spending, you know, a few million dollars to build a 30, 40, $50 million company. We're either selling you the property too cheap or, you know, let us in on your formula. And so we then had to move abroad and we went into places like Colombia and Brazil. And then we Mm. went to Africa. Africa is where we had that big deal, you know, Turkana, where we merged with Africa oil. You know, we were early movers in Kenya. Kenya was not an oil producing nation. You know, one of our buddies who's Ismaili, you know, he grew up in that region, you know, in East Africa, moved to Canada, introduced us to the project. We took a gamble on it. You know, it was risky. We could have lost all our money. We picked it up. We didn't, you know, we knew it was a great project. We never thought, in, you know, ever in our lives that it would, it would turn a, you know, a $200 million company that we merged into, into 3 billion. And, you know, now Kenya is an oil producing nation because of us. So, you know, that just shows you that you can create a small company and be a wildcatter. It's one of those few industries still today 
where you can go and put together a piece of a, a property. You can have one or two executives. You can outsource your drilling, outsource your geology, outsource most of your work. You can build a small independent, you know, exploration and, and development company. And, you know, if you have something of interest, there are still people, you know, you can move it up the food chain. And, you know, biotech is not really much different than oil and gas. That's why it was very easy for me to pivot into biotech and fintech. You know, if you think about it, biotech, fintech and gaming, they're really not other than being different sectors. Those businesses, too, you've got a few guys that have a great idea. They outsource in the beginning, maybe to a development team in Ukraine or Russia or Belarus or Turkey. They then go and outsource you know, to a, a rent to CFO or part-time CFO. They can go and find lawyers to do stuff. It's no different in biotech too. You know, you, you're you a scientist working in a lab. You got a grant. You create some intellectual property, file a couple patents. You find a CRO, you know, to do your research for you uh, and you're outsourcing it to them. If they find something of interest, you then go in JV with, you know, a pharmaceutical company to take it through clinical trials. You know, there's so really, if you think about it and break it down, you know, and, and I really learned the adaptability element when I went and did my, my MBA at Cambridge. That's where it really hit me. And, you know, the, the program there, if I learned anything out of the program, it was that, you know, you can, it, it's very easy to adapt yourself. You don't need to be an expert at everything, but you have to be an expert at one thing and you have to be really good at that one thing that you're an expert. And if you're really good at that, you can find other pieces of the puzzle and put it together and you can bring other people into your equation and story. You know, like you look at people, you know what people like even Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, they're not great at everything, but they're very good at, you know, one thing and they're able to find the right people to help them build their companies and grow it. And, and the same goes with whether you're doing a tech deal or you're doing a biotech deal or you're doing an oil deal. I'm really good at identifying great opportunities, great management teams and raising capital. And if they're ready and able, helping them go public. That's really my skill set, that sort of journey of startup to, to exit. That's so, really my expertise. So, so uh, yeah, I love that. And, and uh, clearly that's like having that, that expertise, like if you say, okay, well, Ron's expertise is what you just said, then to your point, it doesn't really matter what industry it's in. It's industry agnostic because you're going to go find the team and raise capital for that team and that product. Right. Going, going back to, um, you know, and, and, and I, I, again, I don't want to underscore this because, and maybe I've overcomplicated this in my life. Cause I'm, I'm at a point right now where I'm actually starting a private equity fund. We're going to raise capital. It's the first time I raised capital, everything. I'm like a serial bootstrapper and I bootstrapped my last business from literally like almost nothing to $200 million of revenue. And so, um, for me going like, and I'd love your, your thoughts on this. When you went into the wildcatting business, how did you guys raise money? I mean, you didn't have experience as a, as a wildcatter. How did you guys raise money? Like, what was your thought process around that? And then the other question I had is, you know, th there's a saying in, in life, which is success has many fathers and, and, you know, failure is an orphan. I'd love to hear, like, did you guys just get lucky out of the gates or was there failures that led you to this success? I'd love th to hear those two things. Oh, I mean, there's been lots of failures and lots of successes. I think, you know, I've been doing this for 20, you know, I'm touching 50 soon. I've been doing this for a long time. And so I think that, yeah, it was, you know, it wasn't really difficult because we sell funding. You know, when we started in the oil business, 
the projects we started with, the wells were not that expensive. And, you know, we already made money in the tech space and we had capital. Mm. Our, our first project wasn't so difficult to do. We how much, how, to, how much did you guys have to invest in the first project? Two, $3 million to kick, to kick it off. It wasn't big money. So we kicked that one off. That one became a success. We raised money. The market performed well. And then we were able to go raise money. And, you know, we were able to raise money for a lot of the projects were, you know, we were, we got, we were active in projects that were hot spaces and hot sectors. Mm. And so when the market reacts favorably and your stock performs well, people will throw money at you, not even caring what the company does. There are, you know, people follow like momentum buyers, like GameStop, if you remember. 80%, 90% of the people didn't even know what GameStop did. They bought into Mm. the company because of momentum. So I think it was, it was hard in the beginning, but we were very lucky. You know, we were fortunate that our first oil deal we did was a big success story. The market, we, we sort of, all the stars were aligned when we did our first oil deal. Oil prices were like 20, 30 a barrel and just took off, you know, and there was a huge supply and demand issue and demand was massive, you know, and supply was not there. So the oil prices exploded. Then there was, you know, political problems in the Middle East, which, you know, drove prices more. Everybody wanted American energy independence and and America was not energy independent. You remember there were all those documentaries out there, you know, like peak oil and running on empty. And they were always warning us in 2007, eight, that America didn't have enough energy. And that's why Canada with the oil sands took off. So we were in the right sector. It was like, you know what it was? It was being in the oil and gas sector at that time was like being in the tech space in 98, 99, you know, just when everything really took off. And so one, that was our fortunate time. We've also had, you know, situations where we believed our own, you know, we believed our own story too well. You know, we had a deal where we had a perfectly amazing company. You know, we we went and thought, okay, we had a great exploration story. You know, we were going to drill these amazing exploration assets surrounded by majors. And then we said, you know, that project is not going to be a producer for a number of years. You know, let's go and and raise money and we raised money and we decided to do a $25 million deal with, you know, a major producer and we drilled a bunch of wells in Louisiana and we hit dry holes and it blew the company up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes if you try to, you know, run before you're walking, you know, and you try to, you know, sit at the table with the big boys, it's the wrong decision. Sometimes it's better to be a big fish in a small pond than to be, you know, than to be eaten up by sharks, you know? And so, yeah. you know, that's the situation. And that was a learning curve for us. The learning curve was know your place on the totem pole. We're like, we're the top of the, echelon of the mid market that's our specialty don't try and break through the ceiling and be punch above your belt and Mm. so we learned from that you know dearly because it cost us a lot of money and it blew up a company that was a great company on a great trajectory and you know all of a sudden it got knocked down so i think sometimes people they let success get to them and we surely did we let success get to us and we thought oh you know we're you know we're invincible and we went into the battlefield unprepared and, you know, and it took us down and we were casualties of our own, of our own uh, experience. And, and it's unfortunate. And that taught us, you know, to evaluate things and take your time and, you know, not, you know, get ahead of yourself. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here. And I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you. They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life. From canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, 
for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear, uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Yeah, that's so interesting. So did you guys, um, how, how, how early on did you guys take the company public? Because it sounds like you went on the TSX. Was that fairly early or was that part of the play? T tell us about that. You know, we were doing deals in the U.S., Canada, the U.K. You know, my always we were always looking at an IPO within, you know, one to two years. That's always been our process as being a one to two year IPO. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Sometimes, you know, like in the case of Turkana, we, we completed the merger with Africa Oil. It was approximately two and a half, almost three years from when we started the company up. Wow. You know, which sometimes it's usually it could be a year to two years even, but I'd say it's a one to three year process. And it really depends on a few variables. It depends on, you know, the the size of the opportunity, you know, the ability to raise capital, the, the management team's experience. But also the most important thing is, are the market conditions, are they open or closed for business? And, you know, if we look at the market, you know, a year ago to today, you know, an example is a year ago it was very easy to raise money for companies and today it's a lot harder. So the same, there were always good and bad times in the markets. You know, I've been doing this, nothing's changed in what I do, you know, for over 20 years. The only thing that's changed 
is some sectors have fallen out of favor and some are more in favor and market conditions have changed. You know, the market goes up and down and, you know, that's if we all had crystal balls, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today. Yeah. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit more because it sounds like you, you've been good at identifying the hot parts of the market and then going into those hot parts of the market. You know, uh, I'll use myself again as an example because I'm, I'm starting a private equity fund and I've had three people now say, well, do you think right now is a good time to do that? I'm like, well, what am I going to try to time the market? And in and, and the sector we're actually looking to go into is a, a fairly like hot sector more or less, right? But, but and when I heard that, I'm like, I don't think you can time that, right? Now, I will agree with you there's sectors of the market. I'll use my former business, mortgage, banking, and servicing. It's almost, there's these every seven years for like nine months, the market opens up and you can go public. And then the other 95% of the time, it's impossible to take these things public. So I, I hear what you're saying, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this for folks out there that are looking to raise money in this environment right now. When people say to them the stuff they're saying to me, which is like, what do you think right now is a good time? I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Wait it out? Like, when, when is there going to be uh, like, that might take three years for it to be a good time. There's never a good time. And, you know, when what I say to people is, you know, do what interests you. And, you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a, a, an avid reader. I read a lot and I, I like to educate myself and I like to read up about sectors. I've got two kids, you know, 13 and 11, and they're very, they're very much into gaming and VR and AR and coding. And so, you know, I live vicariously through them and through their interests. And, and I find that that helps me a lot. And, and, you know, the gaming side of it is through my kids. I saw my kids, you know, from they could barely, they couldn't read and write and they couldn't, you know, move, but they could operate an iPad and choose the game they wanted to play and play the games, which is ridiculous because I'm the generation where I didn't have internet or an email address until I was in university because the internet yeah. didn't exist. And but we still play video games. I grew up playing Nintendo and Sega and Commodore 64 and games and everything and going to the arcade. And so I think find areas that interest you. There's always opportunities. You know, raising money and going public is not a, uh, an instant uh, process. It's, you know, it could take anywhere from six months to a year to, to go public by the time, you know, you have to prepare a proper prospectus and audit and everything. So the markets could be super hot when you decide to go out and, start that process. And then by the time you clear the regulatory approvals for your IPO or your offering, the markets close and you can't raise any money. And I've been in that situation and all you can do is be patient. And so, you know, I think I realized that, you know, when oil prices were down dramatically, you know, I waited and waited and I thought the market would recover and it didn't. And, you know, and when I was doing my MBA and doing my MBA, you know, I got roped into a med tech deal and then some biotech deals and then some gaming deals. And I realized that intellectual property deals are really not different than oil and gas and mining. Here, you you know, how do you actually value someone's life work and a, and a, a portfolio of patents or even one or two patents? It's very difficult. It's like saying, how long is a piece of string? Or, you know, is, is your wife or her husband handsome or beautiful? Or are your kids smart? It's a difficult, <laughs> really difficult question. You know, there's, it's like, right, right. how are you going to, who am I to go and tell a guy who's been like a professor at Stanford for 40 years and who put, you know, all this time into his lab work and patented, you know, his technology and his process with the university. And I'm now creating a company and licensing this IP from Stanford with a world-class professor who am I to say that this is worth a million or it's worth a billion? You know, no one can really tell you that. And, you know, it's a difficult one today. And so what I like to do is I like to choose big world ideas. I like to look at if I'm going after a biotech deal, I want an area of focus. 
I'm not looking to focus on a drug that the annual market, the total addressable market is $100 million a year. Because even if I get 10% of that market and, and I'm getting 10 million, how difficult is it for me to get 10, 10% of a big market share of a, of a drug and who cares about it? So I'm looking for stuff that are multi-billion dollar problems in biotech. I'm looking for, I really love FinTech and SaaS because these are businesses that can scale up extremely fast. They don't need a huge number of employees and there's, you know, repeat business models with like freemium solutions and things like that. And, and I just think that I really like fintech. I like SaaS. I like that whole model a lot. Metaverse I love because, you know, I remember when Facebook, you know, now Meta bought, uh, you know, Oculus. You probably remember too. People yeah. were saying, you know, why are they buying this thing? What, who's going to even use VR? And I remember how VR has just changed. And, you know, today you put on um, an Oculus 2, a Quest 2. I even tried their Pro. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's so realistic. I'm, I'm holding meetings with people through on virtuality, on like spatial and on these different horizon world and all these platforms. And it's unbelievable. And just like, you know, when people had a website and then they needed to have social media, people are going to have a metaverse, you know, and a virtuality solution today too. So I think technology is advancing. There's certain areas that are great. And, you know, I think if you choose a few of them, you're, you know, you're going to get it right eventually. What, um, well, number one thing, I appreciate all all these insights, and 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 I'm and, you know the listeners don't know, but I'm I'm geeking out right now on everything Ron's talking about. This is really cool. Um, so yeah, let's move into the venture. So <clears throat> you obviously had a, a great outcome with taking the oil exploration company public, and now you've taken your skill set, as you mentioned earlier, your expertise in finding great teams, finding great ideas, raising capital, putting it all together in one, and doing it in the world of venture. I have a, a really good friend of mine who's a venture capitalist out of San Francisco, um, and I've actually invested in a couple of his funds. And you know, he sat down with me and a group of CEOs, and, and we've known each other for two decades, and, and was teaching us about how he, he does early stage venture for autonomous vehicles. That's his, that's his area of expertise. And, um, you know, he, he kind of drew this chart out. He said, look, you know, when people bring, you know, you know, one deal here, one deal there, his perspective is that you, you don't invest in just one deal here and there. You really have to place a lot of bets. Right. Yeah. And his number is like, look, and he's early stage and, you know, it's early stage seed or, or early stage a, and he's like, look, I, I placed 40, 30, 40 bets and expect to get a couple winners out of there and a lot of duds. Um, it, it, what, it, do you have the same perspective? What stage are you going in from a venture perspective? Uh, are you early stage, mid stage, growth stage, all the above? Tell us about that. Yeah. So our model is a little bit different, you know, we're, cause we, we actually marry, we carry the deal usually from the early stages all the way through to an exit. So we could be in a deal, you know, for seven years, 10 years, you know, I have some deals I've been in them seven years. I've some, I've been in them, you know, 18 months two years, but our usual life cycles, two to five years is the usual. Some are a little bit less, some are a little bit more. You know, we're not really like a fund where we're investing. We're active partners. So we take an active role. We, we'll, My partners and I will own anywhere from, you know, 10, 20% up to 40% of the company. So we're big active partners. We're like an incubator and accelerator and minority partner all in one. We're principal investors where we help hold the hand of the founders you know, and we're dealing only with the founders and the CEOs. We're not dealing with, you know, executives or anything. We'll hold their hand along the entire journey from startup to IPO and, and exit. And then after the IPO, you know, I had last last week, one of the CEOs of a company that I helped 
take public. I'm a co-founder. I helped take them public on NASDAQ. In a zero to 14 month window, I raised them $70 million between two private rounds, an IPO, a secondary, warrant conversions. The company has over 40 million in the bank. They're trading below cash in the bank with no debt. And they're a target, of course, of shareholder activists. People try to take the company over and say, you guys are not running this company properly. And the management's a fantastic management team. And I think they're doing a great job. They're just you know, victims of difficult market conditions where people don't understand biotech and don't don't like it. And so these guys came along, wanted to help, you know, take the company, take control of the company. And, you know, so I was giving advice and helping advise the CEO and on, on and help, you know, we voted to support him as well. And so we're still active, you know, and that company has been public now for like, you know, I'd say 14, 15, 16 months, almost already. So, you know, we've been, we're still active after the IPO and they come to me and they ask me all the time for advice about certain things. So, so I think that, you know, I have a portfolio probably I'm active in, I'd say, you know, 15 deals I'm active in. So I have a number of projects that I'm very active in. Some of them work out, some of them don't. I would say that, you know, probably half the companies we do go public and the other half don't. And when, I, when you know, they're not necessarily a success story when they go public. Sometimes we make more money by not taking the company public. Sometimes the company is misunderstood or, or is the target of shorts or, you know, bad market conditions can also, you know, cause an entire sector to fall down. And I've had situations where I've had great companies go public too early and they've fallen apart and they've not worked out. And it's harmed us because, you know, we've not made as much money as we wanted to make. No one has. And then I've had situations where, companies go public too early, raise a ton of money. And, you know, they shouldn't have raised that kind of money, but you know, they were, they were on the other side of the spectrum. The market was super hot. There was momentum in the stock. They took advantage. All the stars were aligned. They raised more money than they needed. And now they're in the position of having loads of cash and being able to make, you know, great decisions. So it works on both sides. So, so I'd say it's like a 50, 50 going public and not going public. And then the ones that stay private, a difficult one you know so i'm probably we're like a 50 50 model not you know we're we're doing well because we're very picky on the deals we do we're not doing every deal i'd say probably one or two out of uh, probably like one or two out of 20 that come to me we're, we're doing deals with what when so when you start looking at these different spaces and and i find it really fascinating what you just said which is that for some folks because i've heard people say this in the past where they're like oh you know i really I just want to take my company public. And I actually used to have that mindset. And then you start to look, I always tell people, Hey, if you want to take your company public, go and listen to a bunch of earnings calls and, and just know that that's what you're signing up for, right? You're, you're signing yeah. up to be the CEO on the other end of that call, you know, justifying every single thing you do, dealing with analysts, you know, having a fiduciary responsibility that's publicly facing. And, and for some, and, and I have thought for myself, I'm like, I could do it. I, I'm not, like, I, I didn't have a qualm about it. Um, but I could see a lot. I know a lot of entrepreneurs where they want to call their own shots. They don't want to have that level of transparency. They don't want to have to, you know, report every little thing that they're doing. And the reality is, is if you're a publicly traded company, the public is your shareholder. The public is who you serve. It's a nightmare. You have online abuse and trolls and harassment and people writing, you know, terrible things about you and your family and other stuff. And there's nothing you can say or do because it's like throwing oil on fire, you know, and everyone's being held hostage to it. And I mean, you look at people, you have people like, look at Michael Rubin, you know, with Fanatics, that company could have gone public years ago. And, you know, he's held back. And because a lot of people, like you're saying, they don't want the transparency. They've been through the capital markets. They've made money. Usually the big 
private companies are people that have been through the public market and have had a bad experience, or maybe they've had a good experience and realized, I don't want to go down that road anymore. Look at Michael Dell. He took, he took Dell private, you know, he was a perfect example, you know, but then you've got people like Bezos. A lot of people forget Amazon was not a huge IPO. They only raised 54 million on their IPO and they went public. If you look at it now, they're like, you know, trillion mark trillion plus a couple trillion market cap you know he was out of favor in the markets for like two decades people did not you remember they made no money people thought the company was never going to make money and they pivoted to new ways of making money and which turned out to be a massive you know home run and winner for them i know it's like so funny when you look at amazon you're like they make all their money from amazon web services which is almost no, nothing to do I mean, with their core business no it's ridiculous right ridiculous <laughs> so um so a couple couple things. Um, I, I know that we're turning the corner. We got about fifteen more minutes. Um, so, you know, when you look at, uh, uh, you know, who you guys place bets on, because a lot of listeners to this, they might be out there running their own businesses, thinking about raising money. You know, I have a a, a really good friend. He runs one of he runs one of the top um, healthcare venture funds in the United States uh, here in, here in in Austin. I always say people are, you're betting on the pony. You're betting on the entrepreneur. If you want to raise money, just know that people kind of look at your idea. They'll look at your pro formas. They'll look at that stuff. And yeah, that stuff matters to a point. But at the end of the day, you could have the best pro forma, best business plan, best IP in the world. But if the wrong ponies, right, you know, running around the track, the execution is going to get screwed up and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to translate into a win. What are your thoughts on that? You said you bet on teams. How do you like vet the entrepreneur that you want to bet on? Oh, I'm, I agree. I totally agree. And I bet, you know, so on the entrepreneur, definitely. The key element is you could have the best idea in the world and you could have the best team. But if the leader and if the founder doesn't have the ability to take it across the finish line or close or take the deal forward, it, it, you know, it's one thing having a great idea and it's one thing, you know, being able to raise money. But can you actually execute? Can you actually, you know, take this deal from startup to you know fruition and and so i'm a big believer i agree 100 with that comment i also back the founder the entrepreneur the the leader that's my key thing i'm a big believer in you know my gut feeling on the people i'm doing business with and so i need to i need to meet them i need to see them i need to hear about them and it's okay if someone has done a great a deal that's fallen apart and they've had failures it doesn't mean just because someone failed a couple of times they're not going to have success. Sometimes people get it right, you know, the second or third time. And it's okay. You know, we all have successes and failures. And then, you know, you got to learn, you have to learn from your mistake and, and pick yourself up and, and figure out how to make it a success. And so I think that's a really important uh, point is backing, you know, the right leader and the right founder. What do you, what are your thoughts on hubris, right? Because I think, you know, I found a lot of I have a rule that it's not a it's not a, it's not a hundred percent, but it's a pretty high percentage where I will not invest if someone hasn't had a failure. Right? I see these people that they just crushed it and like they've just had this great run, and you look at what they were doing before, and I'm like, wow, they kind of hit, hit they kind of hit a home run right out of the gates, and they just haven't dealt with adversity, right? Or they've had a really good market behind them. In the United States, I'll use the example of I know some folks who are maybe now they're in their like mid thirties who started some, a multifamily, uh, you know, investment fund 10 years ago. And I'm like, well, you couldn't have had a better timing on that one. It's had a 10 year run and yeah, maybe you did some of the right stuff, but a lot of dumb people got it right in, in that space. So, you know, for me, I'm like, I want someone that's had their teeth kicked in. I want to know how they got their teeth kicked in. Cause I want to know what they've learned. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, my thoughts are, of course, you know, someone cannot, someone can appreciate the true feeling of success if they've not experienced failure. I agree with you. It's and and you know, leading in from you know the last point, you know, we've all gone through. I've had loads of failures, and so I appreciate success now because I understand how hard it is. And you know, but I've also people also have you know selective memory. And, you know, you you know, I went through the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. I lost like 80% of my wealth and then I made it back again, you know, and, but people still make bold decisions and bad decisions, you know, and people today, you know, are walking into what could be a difficult market or recession, you know, not having learned from that experience. And so I think that people have selective memory and that's the problem. And the problem is that the younger generation today, they've only gone through a great bull market. They've not experienced a difficult market or a financial crisis. And I think it's, you know, they're going to need to experience difficult times, unfortunately, to, to learn to appreciate the good ones. Yeah, for sure. So let's move on to some of the some of these new areas that you're exploring. Metaverse, blockchain, you know, uh, like those are, you know, obviously we talked about VR um, a little bit earlier. But, you know, I know that and I really want to kind of hammer in on, on, on metaverse first, like Mark Zuckerberg is just getting dragged through the mud right now for this pivot. And people are like, this guy's an idiot. Why is he not focused on his core business? Now his core business has taken a bunch of hits because of the iOS updates and mm-hmm. their ability to, to target advertising. I, I was like brilliant move on the part of Apple. If they want to like beat up a potential competitor, but um, what, what do you like? A lot of people I'm hearing them say, who the hell wants to be online more, right? But And then you have the other side of the fence, which is people are like, no, this is the future, man. You're going to spend time in a virtual world, to your point, having virtual meetings. You, you, we have the capability of that. Maybe it won't, maybe you won't be wearing an Oculus, but maybe it'll just be, you know, where it's less cumbersome. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because for me, I'm 50-50 on it. I could see it happening, but am I going to go buy you know, a beach in the metaverse? I don't know. Am I going to go buy a nightclub in the metaverse? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, so I think people are getting ahead of themselves with like sandbox, Decentraland, where you've got to buy land and and create something. I get that. You know, if you're if you're like a store and you have something to sell, then yes, there's value for you to be in a retail mall area next to other retailers where people are going to pass by and see you. But I'm looking at it from a business standpoint and business sense. And so what I'm looking at is, the, you know, COVID and the, pande- and the pandemic, you know, and the lockdown taught all of us something very important. It taught all of us that you don't need to travel anymore for meetings. You can do your meetings on Zoom or on Google Meets or on Teams. So you can use a virtual platform to interact and speak with people and hold meetings with multiple people. You can also conduct roadshows. Underwriters were doing roadshows on Zoom and the companies, it was way better for the capital markets team and for the CEOs of the company because they could basically do eight to 10 meetings a day, quick meetings on Zoom, you know, with a large number of institutions, close an IPO or close an offering very quickly. So the way I look at it is I look at it as people needed a website when there was web 1.0. Okay, that was the first thing. You needed a website. People would say, okay, what's your web address? What's your website? Let me go look at your website. You go and you Google, you'd look up the website, you'd enter it. Then people said, okay, web 2.0, you needed social media. What's your Instagram? What's your Twitter? What's your Facebook? What's your you know, TikTok? You know, what's your LinkedIn? You know, what's your YouTube channel? Everybody had, you know, socials. And if you're not on social media and you're a social media ghost, you know, then who are you? Is there something, you know, fishy here, dodgy about you? Mm. And now it's going to be metaverse. 
people are going to be, okay, well, what's your metaverse environment or metaverse experience? So now I'm going to have a meeting with eight people. I'm going to say to them, you know, here's a link to my, my metaverse environment on spatial, let's say, okay, or horizon world. And, you know, you're going to, people will have, will be buying just like people buy an iPhone every year or every six months or they're buying a new iPad or why wouldn't they spend $500 or $400 on these? You know, eventually these VR headsets are going to get to a more comfortable price point. But even today at $500, that's not really a lot of money anymore. You know, not in business, let's say it's cheaper to buy a headset for $500 than jump on a plane and be away from your family and go stay in a hotel today, a good, decent hotel today is 500 bucks a night. So you buy the headset, you get, you all of a sudden you're there and you can be sitting, you know, I've, I visited companies headquarters now in the metaverse where you're in a meeting room, you sit down, you turn around and you're looking at the people next to you. I visited, you know, academic institutions are doing, you know, learning environments through the metaverse. And, you know, sometimes you don't want to go somewhere. And I understand that people are saying, oh, it's impersonal. There's no small talk. There's no team building. Sometimes, you know, I'm touching 50. I've got my circle of friends. I've got my kids. Sometimes you just don't want to give up your time. All we have in this world is a limited amount of time. And as you know, you probably agree with me, you know, as you get older and as time goes on in life, you know, that time is worth a lot more to you. And if I can, you know, put on a headset and do four or five meetings a day with people in different parts of the world rather than jump on a plane. Hey, I love traveling and I love experiencing going to new places, but it gets to a point where, you know, you've been there, you've done that, you want to sort of utilize it. And so I think the metaverse, I think Zuckerberg is spot on. I think he's ahead of his curve. He's mm. early. This is the problem with disruptors. Disruptors always have people tell them they're making mistakes, they're wrong, they're this. Sure. You know, the same was Canary Wharf. You know, the Reifmans developed Canary Wharf without a tube connection in London. And everyone said, who's going to go work at Canary Wharf? Then the tube came along to connect it. And, you know, in Canary Wharf, every big bank and law firm moved there. Same as with Amazon. They laughed at Bezos on Amazon. And now look at, you know, Amazon today. They own everything. You know, they've got millions of employees and they control the world. Look at Apple. They laughed at Apple. You know, Steve oh, yeah. Jobs, they booted him out of his company, brought him back in. They said, what, you're going to build this whole company on a computer? And, and they kept innovating and innovating and coming out with creative things. And so I think that disruptors have to take abuse. I think Zuckerberg is spot on. He knows what he's doing. He's taken a beating in the company. But I mean, you get to the point also where, you know, when you when you have a billion dollars or two billion dollars, does it make a difference whether you're worth two billion or 20 billion? The way the life he lives and his wife lives and how humble that guy is and what he's doing business wise, it's not going to make any difference whether he has two billion or 20 billion or 200 billion. He's changed the world already with Facebook. No matter what, he's changed the world 100 percent. He's going to go down as one of the most innovative, disruptive people, whether you agree or disagree with what he's done. And the same is going to be with the metaverse. You know, he's spot on. He has it 100 percent. I think people are going to they're going to do a massive 180 and come around on their opinion. I think anyone that goes in to Horizon World and, and tries it out and goes into these different worlds. And he's not just said Oculus will only work in Horizon World. You can use his headset everywhere. He didn't have to do that. You know, and so and people are giving him a hard time. I just think that, you know, metaverse is the future and VR is the future. And it's 100 percent. And the experiences are only getting better and better. And it's going to be just like we use LinkedIn and there's, you know, Zoom and Teams and Google Meet. You're going to you're going to be using a VR headset and, and enter metaverse environments. Interesting. 
All right. You got me sold, man. I'm buying an Oculus. I'm going to do Oculus. No, but you made a good point, right? And there's, there's this like, um, uh, I was watching Narcos or something and they're talking about like, you want a product that creates its own demand, right? Yeah. And they're talking about cocaine, which was kind of a, it's a funny analogy, right? But, but what you just said earlier made me think of that, which is that the limit, the most, the most limited asset we all have is our time. Right. Yes. And as we get older, it's the denominator, you know, gets, gets a lot smaller, right? Because there, there, there's just less, less of it. And so every time we use more of that numerator, we're using a larger percentage of our time. And if we can augment that in a way that's more effective than a zoom or a meetup or something like that online, then my sense is, is that the more realistic that comes, the more demand that will create its own demand, right? As people see that. Cause I, I yeah. even, I, I found myself saying this earlier this morning where I was like, man, it takes a lot to get me on a plane. I, I don't want to, cause I, I got kids. My kids are, my, my oldest is turning 13. My youngest is nine. I'm like, I don't want to be away from my kids. I, I, I traveled a lot for business for the 20 years and I'm not willing to do it now. Exactly you know? like me. Same thing. Totally. Um, well, look, uh, we're, we're coming near the end of the show. Ron, what a great conversation, man. I, I appreciate all your insights. So, um, you know, I, we truly believe here at The Greatness Machine that it's hard to create greatness in the world. And I'd love to hear what is the largest barrier to greatness that you've overcome in your life and how did you overcome that barrier to create greatness in the world? I think the biggest barrier for me was focus. You know, I tried to do too many things at the same time and not be focused. And I think it's really important that when you have an idea and you have a project, you need to actually implement it. And so focus was key for me, being determined and being focused. And, you know, you don't have to, and that's why I said always, you don't have to be the best at everything, be really good at one thing. And you don't have to set yourself 10 things to do, set yourself two or three things to do and do them well and do them quickly. I love it, man. Ron, what a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate so much gratitude for all your insights. I mean, you've done some amazing things in business. And I'm so excited to see the things that you guys do at Thessius Capital just to change the world. It sounds like you're invested in so many cool things. And and uh, really, I, I think entrepreneurism makes the world go around and, and you're, you're a shining example of that. So thank you so much. Appreciate you being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. With that said, um, we're at the end of the show. So listen, if you love the show, share it with friends, uh, leaders or givers. Give this episode to anyone that needs to, to, to learn more about the ideas around raising capital, venture, all these great things that Ron was talking about. I love the, th the conversation we had on the metaverse. Um, it's the first time we've talked about that on the show, and it's, it really opened my eyes. Um, so if you love the show, give us a review, rate us. With that said, peace out, everybody. We love you. Have a good one. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. 
And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.